Well, this is our last sermon in our series in Genesis this fall. We have finally made it. Some of you were asking how much longer we're going to preach through this book. Today's the final day. We finally made it. Don't you worry. Well, last week in Genesis 11, we saw that the people of the earth used their own set of blueprints to build a tower to reach the God of heaven. And these plans that they built this tower uh, with were based on their own desires and wisdom because they wanted to reach God on their terms rather than on His terms. And for that, they were judged. So at the end of Genesis 11... Here's the picture we are looking at. The nations of the world are sharply divided, and they are scattered all all over the earth. There is confusion and dissension among the peoples. There is no consensus on what is true or how to achieve the common good. In fact, they can't even talk about the common good together because all their languages are now confused. So God's world is left fragmented and divided because of human pride. This is yet again another jarring turn of events that we have here in Genesis. Do you remember at the end of Genesis 1 what God said? He said this wonderful word about creation. And God saw everything that he had made And behold, it was very good. It's been a long time since we've heard that. Well, with so much destruction and division, we might think that this word of blessing that God spoke at the beginning of creation is long gone. That it's like an old fossil buried under the layers of human sin. But what we must remember is that when God speaks... He never forgets. He has never lost sight of the blessing he spoke way back at the beginning of creation. You know, from a human standpoint, the more that time passes on uh, between the time that we promise to do something to when we actually do it, the less likely it's going to happen. I'm not asking anyone to rat themselves out or their neighbors out, but isn't that true? We make promises about the simplest things. We make promises to call, and we don't call. We make promises to take out the trash, and we don't do that either. Or maybe I'm making a confession and I don't, and before you all. And soon enough, we forget the things we promise. I'll never forget when we first purchased our home in Philadelphia, a friend of mine said to me, he said, enjoy the next 30 years of promised home renovations that you will never get to. And he was right. We never did get to all those home repairs that we thought that we would before we moved. You see, time eats up so many of our promises. But the exact opposite is true with God. All throughout Scripture, the longer God waits to act on a promise, the more unbelievable and amazing the fulfillment will be. So even after the debacle of the Tower of Babel and generations have passed, God's promise to bless all of creation isn't buried in history, but rather it's the very engine of, that moves history forward until the end of time. The blessing of all of creation isn't in the background in Genesis, 
It's at the foreground of God's master plan. God's timing may be long, but it's always perfect. In fact, we might even say it's a 10 out of 10, and that's exactly what Genesis shows us. Notice how this timing works in Genesis. Ten generations after Adam and Eve rebelled against God, God promised Noah that everything will be renewed on the earth, and that through his line, all creatures will be blessed. And then, ten generations after Noah's son Shem, we get Abram through whom the people of Israel will come into existence and through whom the whole world will be blessed. Years may go by, yet God moves his plan forward according to his perfect timing. But today as we get into our passage, I want us to notice first that the circumstances for God to work aren't quite right. In fact, they're far from right especially as we look at Abram's past. The circumstances just seem all wrong. In Joshua's final sermon to the people of Israel, he reminds them what the life and times of Abram were like. He says, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates River, and Terah, Abraham's father, and Nahor, Abraham's grandfather, served other idols, served other gods. Abram came from a family of idol worshipers. What that means is that what Abram heard about God growing up, what he heard about what was true about the world, about how he used to live, was either distorted or all wrong. The region where Abram lived was filled with idol worship, the worship of the moon, the worship of the stars, the worship of many other gods. Given this set of circumstances, amongst all the gods that were in that region, how was the one God of creation going to get a word in edgewise with Abraham? That was Abram's past. And if we think those circumstances were a problem, his future prospects were no better. When God blessed humanity at the beginning of creation, he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. In one sense, Abram and his family were quite prosperous. They seemed to have great security and great possessions. But in the full understanding of that Old Testament word, blessing, he had no future. The text tells us in verse 30 of chapter 11, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, was barren. And in case we didn't hear it the first time, it says it again, she had no child. Abram's Abram's name means the father of many. How that must have stung. The father of many can't have any children. But I hope by now you are starting to see a theme in Genesis. We've encountered this lack of potential before. In fact, in the very opening verses of Genesis, God takes the formlessness and void and creates a lush and fruitful world filled with blessing. In the story of Noah, God takes a single family and uses a flooded world and makes a covenant with Noah that brings a blessing to every creature. 
And now in Abram and Sarah's family, he will overcome barrenness and not just give them a child, but make them a great nation, the people of Israel, that will now bless all the other families of the world. Having no potential is not a problem for the God of creation. Maybe, to, maybe as you're sitting here today, you are not a follower of Jesus and this whole God thing seems interesting to you, but it feels beyond your potential. You say, I'm too different from everybody else I look at around here. I'm not really the church-going type. They seem to have their lives put together. I don't belong here. Or maybe you're a follower of Jesus and you say, because I've done this thing, I can't be used by God. Or I'm too young. Or I'm too old. My language skills aren't that good. My education isn't good enough. Whatever the reasons, there is no potential for me. To paraphrase Paul's words to a group of unlikely Christians found in Corinth, he says to them, remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy, and yet, God has still called you. And what's the conclusion Paul comes to? As a result, no one could ever boast in the presence of God. When it came to Abram, there is nothing in his family background, there is nothing in his spiritual upbringing, there is nothing in his future that would indicate this is the one through whom all the people will be blessed. And yet, simply because of God's choice, that is exactly what is going to happen. Because God has chosen him to advance the plan of salvation. No potential, that is not a problem for God. That's the lesson we learned from Abram's past. Now before we look at the actual promise God makes to Abram in verses 2 and 3, Look with me at what God says to him in verse 1 of chapter 12. He says this, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. This unbelievable promise that God is going to make to Abram comes at a great cost. At 75 years old, God asked Abram to finally get started to go on a life-changing 500-mile trek, climbing mountain ridges, descending valleys, to walk along dangerous paths. And where exactly is he going? God only knows. No, really, God only knows. No one got in their car this morning and said, I wonder where I'm going today. But Abram had to pack up everything and just set out. But it's not the distance or the travel path that the text draws our attention to. It's the sacrificial obedience Abram must make. Immigration has the hope of reward, but it comes with difficult costs. Many of you know that firsthand. Right now, as we speak, thousands of people are traveling through the treacherous jungle of the Darien Gap from South to Central America. And they're leaving their family and all that they know behind for a promise of a better future. 
Now, usually, people undergo the dangers and challenges of immigration for economic advancement or for more security and prosperity. But God asks Abram to leave his place of plenty and security, to leave his father and mother behind, and by leaving his father behind, leave all that you know about your religious traditions and your gods, and instead, you must go to an unknown place for a far out blessing. You see, all that the world would direct Abram to live for, the comfort, the security, the family, the friends, he must now leave those behind, those many riches behind, for a single promise from the God of creation that he can't even see like he can see the sun or the moon God. What a cost. Years later, Jesus said to the crowds in Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus isn't being literal in his words, but he is being serious about the cost following Him. You see, to follow the call of God, whether in the Old or in the New Testament, has always come at the cost of breaking away from the past. For many people who are raised outside of faith, this renunciation of the past is radical. They experience a dramatic and earth-shattering conversion from their old life to the new life that God is calling them to. For others, perhaps those who are raised in Christian homes, conversion comes gradually. It's a slow maturing over time. Some of the best testimonies we could ever hear begin in this way, as far as I remember, of, I've always wanted to follow Jesus. But you see, no matter how or when we were converted, all of us are called to renounce sin each day. We are called to be like Abram and not to get caught up in the trappings and security and comfort of this world. And at this time of year, devotion to excess is a real temptation. We're bombarded with messages to live for fulfillment here and now rather than what Christmas is all about. The early 20th century English Baptist preacher, F.B. Meyer, has a timely challenge for us. He says, how will people believe us when we talk about our hope if it does not wean us from excessive devotion to things around us? If we are just as eager and worrying and grasping and just as dependent on the pleasures and fascinations of this passing world as others in the world, may they not begin to question whether our profession is true or whether there is a life to come at all. In this season of preparation for Christmas, what is God calling you to renounce and to give up for His sake? Now, there's another side of this, because whenever people in the Bible renounce the ways of the fallen world and answer God's call, it's because there is a greater promise and an unmatched reward. Jesus says this in Luke 18, truly I say to you, 
There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And Abram is the first, among the first, to experience the beauty of that blessing that Jesus is talking about. Listen to how many times God pronounces his blessing upon Abram in verses 2 and 3. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." I paused a little bit so you know when to say the word blessing there. Five times God pronounces this blessing. In the previous 11 chapters of Genesis, there are five instances of curses against the serpent, against the earth, against Cain, and two are pronounced in the lifetime of Noah. But in this problem to Abram, there is a five-fold blessing. In other words, that which is cursed will now be blessed again. All will not be lost. What Abram, what Abram renounced can't compare to what he is about to receive. Now, there are three ways that we see in this passage that Abram is going to be blessed. There's going to be a land before him, a great name behind him, and a great family that will come from him, namely the people of Israel. This promise is so great in its meaning and scope, it's what shapes the rest of the storyline of Scripture. In fact, here's how the New Testament begins. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of, God, son of David, the son of Abraham. Christmas, the celebration of Christ's birth, is such good news because, in part, it is the Abrahamic promise fulfilled. And this fulfillment is worth singing about. And that's exactly what Mary, he do, Mary does in her song about the coming of Jesus. She says, God has remembered his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring. So then the question is, how do we, how does this promise Jesus make us a part of Abraham's family? That's what we heard in Galatians. Know then it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, meaning those who have faith in Christ. Abram was set out to extend the rule of God into Canaan, and Jesus sent out his disciples to bring the gospel of peace to all the nations so that through the spread of the gospel, the world will enter into Abraham's blessing. Now, what I have shared with you, all Christian traditions agree on. It's the basic teaching and storyline of the Bible. But where Christians disagree has to do with the relationship of Israel and the church. 
and the related issue of whether the land of Israel still plays a role in God's future plans for the world. Some of you just woke up. Good morning. Welcome to Sunday worship today. Now, because of the war going on in the Middle East right now, it's especially important to remind ourselves we are not Scripture's original hearers, and Scripture's context is not our current geopolitical world. So when I say Israel, please keep in mind that I'm not referring to the modern state of Israel, but rather to the people from Abraham's line. So broadly speaking, there are two views on the relationship between Israel and the church. And I just want to briefly lay those out for you. From the times of the early church until today, there are church theologians and biblical scholars who say that since the promises of God made to Abraham and to the prophets have been fulfilled now in Christ, only those who put their faith in Christ are inheritors of Abraham's promise and thus are the true Israel. Where does this come from? Where a key passage comes from Romans 9, where Paul writes, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham are so because they are his offspring. He'll go on to say, It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. What is the promise? The promise that all who have faith in Christ are justified, just as Abraham was justified by faith. So then, under this view, the true Israel of God is the church, which consists of all Jewish and Gentile believers in Israel's Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Now, under this view, It's not hard to see that the land of Canaan then doesn't have final significance in God's accomplishing His plan of salvation for the world. Rather, the people of God entering the promised land and then conquesting the land in Joshua are simply installments along the greater plan for the whole earth to come under God's reign, God's eternal dwelling. And Revelation At the end of Revelation, the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven and fills the whole earth. In an article that examines the Old Testament land promises in light of the new, here's what one scholar, G.K. Beale, states. He says, the New Testament understands the land promise as a promise that Israel's land would be expanded to encompass the entire world. The land promises will be fulfilled in a physical form when all believers inherit the earth, but the beginning of this fulfillment is mainly spiritual until the final consummation in a fully physical new heaven and new earth. Are your eyes glazing over yet? Are you still with me? That's the one side. Now, on the other side of this conversation especially in more recent times, there are Christians who believe that although God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ, that for the Jewish people, for the physical descendants of Abraham, there remain promises not inherited by the church. Daryl Bach, in a recent article, nicely sums up this view when he says this, 
the New Testament stresses Gentile inclusion and not Israelite exclusion from the promise. In other words, that even though Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament, and through the gospel, the Gentiles are now part of God's people, God's literal promise to Abraham still stands. And that it still stands despite Israel's disregard for the covenant, uh, the covenant and being exiled and neglecting God's commands that resulted in them being taken from the land. So Daryl Bach will say Jeremiah 32 still applies where we read this, I will certainly regather my people from all the countries where I have exiled, where have I, sorry, where I have exiled them in my anger, fury, and great wrath. I will bring them back to this place and allow them to live here in safety. They will be my people and I will be their God. So then according to this view, according to Bach, The promise of the land still remains for the Jewish descendants of Abraham along the way until Jesus will finally establish his kingdom on earth. Now what I haven't done and what I'm not going to do is going to talk about the challenges of each of these views. So the question is, what view does the church hold? What view does Stonehill Church hold? It's a view that says, in Jesus Christ, God's promises are fulfilled and that he will establish his kingdom on earth in final victory. And you say, wait a minute, both those views believe that. That's correct. In other words, you can think the people of Israel and the land of Israel have a role or don't have a role and still be welcomed here into membership. So in the digital bulletin today, we have a link to three articles, two of which I've referenced right now, that explains the viewpoints between Israel, the land, and the church. What I want to encourage you to do, as you should always do, is download the bulletin. (laughs) Read these articles, pray about them, talk to others about them in a spirit of charity, and then attend the upcoming events for the life of the church. That would be a really great application of this sermon. So for sure the Abrahamic blessing is complicated to sort out. But it's not a matter for us to be left in confusion about, but rather to be amazed and confident about. In fact, when, when the writers take, of the New Testament take up the Abraham promise, that, that's, that's what fuels them is the confidence and the amazing way in which God fulfills this promise. Just think about this. In terms of how Abram, in terms of how much Abram actually saw fulfilled in his lifetime, it's very little. God shows Abram the land, but when he goes there, there are inhabitants there. He never possesses the land in his lifetime. And then, he only has one child of promise with Sarah. Abram would never see anything close to the full extent of what God has promised. Abram would have loved to see our day. He truly had to live by faith. You know, no matter what God may bring to pass in our lifetime, nothing can can compare for what is to come. 
You know the way that the calendar goes, today will be the darkest day of the year, and tomorrow will be the darkest day of the year, and the day after that, and the day after that until the winter solstice. And that's how many of you feel. There is just more and more darkness into our world. But the truth of the matter is, as we wait for the blessing of Abraham to reach all peoples of the world, we must learn to live with confidence despite all the obstacles of our world, despite all the lack of potential, despite all the bad future prospects. We must live in confidence that the one who fulfilled Abraham's promise in the first place will be faithful to complete it upon his return. This is the story of the universe. This is the story of all of history that all of us who put our faith in Christ are a part of. There are so many people around us, in our friendships, in our relatives, who don't know that their life is about this great story. And they get caught up in far less stories about sorting out the details of their own lives. And because they're missing out on this greater story, there is this despair about their lives, about the future of the world. But may that never be the case for all of us who are a part of Abraham's story through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because this is where things are headed. Look around you this morning. The promises of Abraham are being fulfilled right in our midst. All the families of the world are being blessed through him right here and now. And so may this give us our great confidence and hope in this season, regardless of how dark the days may be. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord God, we are amazed that thousands of years ago, you used one man with no future, who was wandering, to bring about all of us into this great faith through the Lord Jesus Christ that nations all throughout the world that didn't even know about this man, Abraham, through the spreading of the gospel, now are his children. Lord, we are so grateful that we are a part of this story that you are writing in history. Would you help us in this season to share this hope that we have in you with others so that they too may come into this Abrahamic blessing through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the family that you have called us to be a part of. Give us the grace to spread this word. In your name we pray, amen.